I'm trying to think of a headline about what we talked about that people will actually want to watch. I know. And everyone's being an asshole instead. Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. This week we talk with John Wood, a friend of mine. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about the toxic conversation and partisan warfare where everyone's trying to destroy each other and why free speech and community and a little bit of empathy is the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Check it out. John, good to see you again. Matt, good to see you too, buddy. We had an awesome conversation mm. yesterday, and uh, I think we met maybe six months ago mm. um, online having a conversation about race, and maybe we'll get into right. that. Um, yeah. But why don't you introduce yourself for people that don't know who John Wood is? What's your deal? That's right. Well, so um, I'm, I, um, most people right now know me because I am a well, I'm a spokesperson for an organization called Better Angels. Better Angels is a national nonprofit organization. It's basically the biggest bipartisan group in America, grassroots volunteer organization dedicated to the work of what you might call political depolarization, but really increasingly sort of the work of of establishing or reestablishing a sense of shared community and shared uh, identity among Americans from across the political political divide. So there's a lot of ways in which we sort of go about that work. The thing that most people are familiar with us for is something called a red and blue workshop model, where we basically take small groups of folks from the left and from the right, we bring them into a shared space, not so much to argue or, uh, or debate about politics exactly, uh, but rather to speak from the vantage point of their own sort of life experience in terms of why they see politics the way that they do. So basically, in a nutshell, we're applying marriage counseling techniques to political conversation. Yeah. Right. But we do a whole lot more than that. I mean, we've got local Better Angels alliances across the country, basically chapters that are bipartisan, that are made up of people who have been through some of our programs, who come together, and they basically look for areas uh, – Areas of possible policy agreement uh, where they can pursue projects or support candidates or campaigns in their own communities uh, and essentially sort of building out a bipartisan infrastructure across the country and on college campuses that principally gives people an opportunity to get to know each other again past the stereotypes, but also provides avenues for people to work together where they can find avenues to uh, areas in which they might want to do that. So that's what Better Angels is about. And before that, um, I was... I've done a few other things. Of course, I'm a contributor at, uh, for Quillette and Ario Magazine and a few other publications. Uh, but prior to all of that, I was the vice chairman of the Republican Party in Los Angeles and a nominee for Congress in 2014. I ran against Maxine Waters in that election cycle. And, um, yeah, those are, those are the highlights. You basically. ran against Maxine Waters. I did, yeah. How I was did. that? That was fun, man. How was, was being fun. a Republican in L.A. <laughs> County? I saw... That's also fun. You stand out. Yeah. You know, you get to put your unicorn horn on, basically, and, uh, you know, have people have people say, I didn't realize that you exist, more or less, you know. Yeah. Um, no, I am. Um, so I was 26 years old when I was running against Congresswoman Waters. And uh, I uh, lived, still live, actually, in uh, South, LA, South L.A., South Central Los Angeles. And uh, 
you know, I um, first of all, I wound up doing better than any uh, Republican or Democrat who would run against Maxine. And uh, I mean, I mentioned that as a point of fact. Truth is, it's not really saying much. I'm the only person to scratch the underside of 30 percent. Part of that had to do with redistricting. The district lines were redrawn to bring in a pocket of conservatives in the South Bay. So that helped. But the other part of it was that I ran my campaign essentially in the inner city overwhelmingly, knocking on doors in Inglewood and Watts and places like that. And, um, uh, you know, my reasons for running had less to do with opposing Maxine Waters, although both in terms of policy and sort of the way, she, you know, I believe politics ought to be conducted. Had Dem- major, demeanor. Yeah, demeanor, right? Yeah. You can say that, demeanor, behavior. You know, I have major points of uh, difference between myself and Congresswoman yeah. Waters. But my, but my major point in running was to, one, introduce a new vision of what politics, uh, a new policy vision to the community, um, something that had less to do with, you know, depending on the kind of apparatuses of the state for subsistence and opportunity and more to do with kind of cultivating our capacity to build up opportunities for ourselves on the community level. And two, to introduce a new cultural narrative to the conversation, one that was based less on demonizing whether we're white or black or left or right, based less on our demonizing one another on the basis of our party affiliation or what views we ascribe to each other on on account of race, and more on sort of returning to a way of relating to each other that focuses on our individual characters and getting to know the histories, uh, our personal histories behind our political points of view. And so the coalition behind my campaign, I mean, we didn't raise a lot of money. We weren't able to buy a lot of airtime. But if you go back and look at the team that I put together and the race that I ran, it was a thoroughly bipartisan, multicultural sort of campaign on my part. My policy, you know, objectives were by and large fairly, you know, right of center. Um, But even at that, I was able to assemble a group of supporters who wanted to see politics done a different way fundamentally in terms of reintroducing some empathy to the conversation. So that's where my mission in political life uh, really began. So um, not to compare you uh, to taking on Goliath, but Mm -hmm. but I feel like your two goals that you just laid out to to eliminate um, sort of the mean partisanship that's that's tearing our country apart Mm -hmm. and to defeat Maxine Waters Mm -hmm. in southern Los Angeles, these feel like not small projects. Right. Right. Yeah. So you're you're not afraid of of <laughs> of breaking some eggs. No, not not really. But I also don't don't really look at those things as all that dramatic, so to speak. I mean, I know it sort of sounds like a big thing to undertake um, when you just sort of lay it out like that. But for me, um, for me, it was just it was just a sensible sort of thing to do, given what I care about in uh, just political life, but just in American life in general. You know, I did misstate something a second ago. I said that that's where my political sort of mission began. And that was when I first sort of stepped onto the battlefield in a visible kind of way. But I sort of, if I go back in time a little bit, I was always interested in politics. But one of my, as an adult, um, my first sort of foray into politics was working for Obama's campaign. In 2008. So I grew up a Democrat, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I was very much taken with the message of Obama's campaign in 2008 because I was taken with the idea that, as he stated in his uh, keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, this idea that we are, not a, we are not a black America, white America, or Latino America. We are the United States, that there's not a red America or a blue America, but we are all Americans. 
Um, I saw that perspective as essentially being in line with the ethos of Martin Luther King Jr. and this this uh, this idea that in order for this nation to live up to its greater percent, uh, potential, we needed to sort of transcend judgment on the basis of race and also uh, King would have also agreed political party and to return to a more fundamental way of assessing each other's human beings on the basis of our shared humanity. So that launched me back into politics and interestingly as a part of an effort to kind of continue what I felt the Obama you know message was about after he was elected I made a conscientious decision to kind of uh, study and explore conservatism and I so I started started reading books that I'd never read before things like Atlas Shrugged and uh, Wealth of Nations and you know Bible for that matter cover to cover a little bit of a different uh, subject because I was also in the midst of a religious conversion at the time and kind of found that after a while, and I also started studying African-American history from a more conservative point of view as well. And after a while, I just sort of stopped and reevaluated my uh, sort of where I landed on a list of, say, 50 or to 100 policy issues and cultural issues. And I realized that, you know, shoot, on at least 62 or 65 of these things, I, I fall kind of, you know, on the right side of the line. And so, but the thing I never stopped doing was trying to open people's eyes up to the idea that there really is sort of common humanity on on both sides of these these questions and and you know areas of truth that are available to be learned from on both sides and yeah. so i just I, I ran i ran for congress and i've done the things i've done since then just just as just because if i wasn't doing that i wouldn't know what to do with myself basically you know i, I i'm a person who has to act on what i think uh, is morally morally right, really. And for me, it comes down to kind of spreading the culture of understanding in our conversation because I just think that America is just collapsing under the weight of our inability to recognize the humanity in one another. And I know that sounds a little bit generic or cliche, but I don't think anything could be more real in this moment. So, so we, met, uh, yeah. we, we met doing a um, online, I don't know what the platform was, but let's call it a Skype conversation between right. six people mm-hmm. um, with an organization called Living Room Conversations, our mm-hmm. mutual friend, Joan Blades. That's right. Uh, former founder of MoveOn.org. That's right, yeah. Is, is working on something, not not unlike what Better Angels is trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. They, what, they create uh, either virtual or actual living room conversations right. between people from across the ideological perspective, different cultural pers- perspectives, skin right. colors. And, and we were talking about race, Mm-hmm. And the 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 thing that that really got my attention when you were talking was the the sort of the the unique history of your upbringing and how that's a metaphor for everything you're trying to do. Tell mm-hmm. tell people a little bit about your about your mom and dad. Right. Yeah. So I um <laughs> so I some people have heard me say this, but I had a bit of a canned line that I would use when I was running for running for Congress. Uh, so whether I was speaking to a black Democratic church in South Los Angeles, South L.A., or to a white Tea Party club in South Bay, L.A. County, I'd frequently lead with the same opener. I'd tell people, I'd say, well, you know, people ask me at the age of 26, what makes you qualified to run to against Maxine Waters and to represent a district as, you know, diverse and intricate as the California 43rd? And I'd 
tell people, I'd say, well, I have, I have sort of a unique uh, family background. Uh, my mother is a liberal black Democrat from inner city uh, Los Angeles. My father is a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. I grew up explaining my father to my mother and my mother to my father, and that's why I think I can represent a lot of you, right? And so it was usually good for, usually good for a laugh, and yeah. it kind of got the point across. Uh, the, the truth is a little bit more nuanced than that, though. Um, uh, my dad, actually, dad never particularly liked that opening line because it was, it was more technically true than anything. My dad grew up a Democrat, uh, grew up in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles, but uh, and didn't become a conservative and a Republican until later, than, later in life. But he was born in Tennessee, and so I come from a musical family. Um, on my mother's side, my mom was an R&B singer, uh, danced on Soul Train um, in the danced on Soul Train in the eighties. Um, my um, one of my uncles on my mother's side uh, was one of the biggest gangster rappers in America. A uh, guy named uh, name was Mac Ten, his rap name. Uh, it was part of a group called West Side Connection, which was Ice Cube's group after he left uh, N.W.A. And um, but on my father's side, my dad is a jazz pianist who grew up, uh, well, loving and admiring jazz music and, and just, just American music in general, raised me with that. And uh, say a little bit more about that in a second. But my grandfather, his father, uh, was one of, the, one of the biggest record industry executives in America. He owned the biggest uh, independent record label in the United States in the 1950s and early 60s. That was Dot Records. And so Dot had 36 million sellers. Its biggest artist was Pat Boone who was the number one selling pop artist of the 1950s. Number one was Elvis Presley, right? So just put that in context. And um, prior to Dot, uh, Grandpa had a radio show. It was actually a mail-order record shop that sponsored a radio show uh, called the Randy's Record Shop. And um, it was the first radio show to broadcast rhythm and blues and gospel, basically black music, to a national audience. As I mentioned to you the other day, on on a clear night, the signal would travel clean into the Caribbean. And uh, from what I understand, Bob Marley um, grew up, uh, well, Bob Marley recorded some of his first hits at a recording studio called Randy's, which was named after the record, after the radio station and indirectly uh, after my grandfather, therefore. And so that radio show launched the careers of uh, people like Mahalia Jackson and Arthur Alexander and Solomon Burke and so forth. Um, Fats Domino called my grandfather on, you know, probably his 87th or 88th birthday or something like that and sang him happy birthday on the phone. Grandpa died in 2011, but some years before that, he he got that call. And uh, my dad tells me that uh, Solomon Burke came and visited my uh, grandfather's recording studio in Los Angeles, probably in the 70s or 80s. And he took the picture of of, uh, Grandpa off the wall and kissed it and said, I owe this man $100,000 or something like that. And he was referring to the opportunities that came to him uh, through the music that was played on the the radio show. Uh, And so you can argue that Grandpa was sort of like the foremost figure in terms of terms of facilitating the crossover of black music into the mainstream kind of music marketplace in the country. I mean, he was one of the main guys who sort of drove that. And that was not just because of the Randy's record shop. It was also because uh, Pat Boone's early hits were covers of Fats Domino songs and uh, Little Richard songs. Well, Ain't Ain't It a Shame and Ain't That a Shame and Tutti Frutti in particular, you know, tutti frutti, oh, rude, tutti frutti, oh, rude, ooh. yeah, Pat had that real kind of slow version, if you recall that, you know, and so he gets, of course uh, he did, yeah, right, exactly, tutti frutti, oh, rude, tutti frutti, 
So, you know, I grew up listening to all of that stuff. And the thing that made my upbringing pretty amazing. So you're literally immersed in, in music and, yeah. and the way that, that black culture and white culture are yeah. coming together through music. That's my background, yeah. really, uh, prior to politics. I mean, that's what I was raised in. And it's a funny thing because I'm, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm uh, biracial and from a multicultural family, actually. But, um, you know, my dad, uh, as a white man, raised me very conscientiously to be to be proud of to be proud of being black, not for its own sake, but because African-American music and musical uh, culture and heritage in the United States was just a central part in my father's view of what made America great. Right. And so this is part of what I would tell people when I was running for Congress and when I was running in the sort of inner city community in particular, because. You know, even before Trump, 2014, he had, you know, the Tea Party and, you know, Mitt Romney had just uh, had just run and lost against Barack Obama. But there was this, uh, you know, this this virulent sense that Republicans and, you know, conservatives or people who by and large are either carrying water for racists or were racist themselves. And that campaign gave me an opportunity to talk about, you know, my experience with my own father to say basically that, well, look, you know, my dad is is a white person who, you know, voted for Romney, who is, you know, sympathetic to the Tea Party and whose politics, you know, he's a white he's he's, he's a white conservative, you know, grew up in grew up in the 50s and so forth. You might have certain assumptions about him based on that. And yet, my dad's big heroes in life growing up were Willie Mays and Muhammad Ali and and Bill Evans, who was a white jazz pianist who came to fame playing with uh John Coltrane and Miles Davis, right? Yep. And I make the case that, you know, he's, and plus he's my father and he loves me and my brother more than, more than anything in life, right? And uh, it was a useful and important story to be able to tell because when we get sucked into this thing of seeing everybody as existing in some kind of, you know, archetypal kind of distortion of, of, their, of their character on the basis of their politics, we can't see individuals anymore. And I think that's what's, largely what's happened in this country is we can't see each other as individuals because we can't get past the labels and we've lost any sense of what connects us as Americans beyond some of these differences. So, so do you yeah. think, so let's, let's dig a little bit deeper on that because mm-hmm. we, we, we have a lot of agreement on, on these issues and, and trying mm-hmm. to get people to consider each other's arguments yeah. uh, regardless of your political party or your skin color or what town you're from, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the tribal separation is and and we we say that there's there's well we see that there's polarization we see that people no longer can hear what the other person's saying because of of preconceived notions about about who they are Um, but is that is that everybody is that us or is that certain leaders that want to to kind of um, manipulate us in and politics is great at this, right? It's it's great mm-hmm. at manipulating us not to vote for me, but to vote against those guys mm-hmm. because those guys are going to destroy this country. Right, yeah. Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that on the one hand, the, the structures are set up in a way to where, whether you're talking about the political parties themselves, the media establishments, even the way I think to a degree, universities are increasingly operating. There's a degree to which, within the formal kind of political classes, power is derived through polarization, through making sure that people are 
balkanized and tribalized so that on the one hand you're able to leverage people in, in opposition against one another while on the other hand you know through people's fear and distrust of each other prevent them from looking as critically as they might at the institutions that they're supporting or at the news channel that they're patronizing uh, because of the fact that you know they're just too wrapped up in opposing the other group to notice what's going on in their own camp, right? Yeah. And so that's the incentive structure that exists, I think, in the media and in the parties, and it makes you know the type of social progress that I think we want to see much more, much more difficult. But I also think that those systems couldn't couldn't work that way if it weren't the case that there were not honest disagreements uh, that existed between the American people that were genuinely intractable yeah. you know yeah so you know this country was built on deep-seated philosophical disagreements but you fast forward a couple hundred years you introduce the massive sort of influx of information technology increase our own ability to sort of silo off the information we receive the way in which we communicate with one another you begin to suck the life out of local communities so that neighbors don't talk to each other anymore and you insert massive sort of demographic change over the course of several decades in a way that introduces, you know, new cultures and new ways of speaking and looking at the world and so forth that don't always translate across these, you know, these these experiential lines from one group to another. Well, even without the the perverse kind of incentive structure of the political establishment, you've still got a recipe for major misunderstanding between people. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a problem that has to be changed, that has to be uh, engaged on the structural level, but uh, even more so, I think, or even more fundamentally um, on the cultural level. And so that, is, that does tend to be where I, I focus a lot of my energy in both of those directions, but I do think that culture is the foundation uh, where you have to begin. Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the... Um, a piece you just wrote for Quillette about uh, communitarianism. Right. And I proceed this by, by pointing out that I find all of these words that we use to identify ourselves, and I was, I was a Tea Partier, um, I identify as a libertarian so that people know where I'm coming from, but, mm -hmm. but I, I think both those words have a lot of ambiguity and baggage and mm -hmm. confusion and... Right. And what you hear when I say that is not exactly what I meant. Mm. Um, I feel the same way about about communitarian, but you're you're describing the the the, the bottom up culture that 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 created um, the both the entrepreneurship and the sense of belonging that that I associate with jazz. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and that to me was a very communitarian thing. Right. It was it was very bottom up. Mm. It was it was yeah. very, but it was also very disruptive. And those two things together mm. create beautiful things. Right. Yeah. Is and when I hear communitarian, I hear that, but but there's a whole history there. So, mm -hmm. you, um, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I mean you're right. People have all these different ways of interpreting these these phrases. When I say communitarian, I definitely don't mean anything particularly left or particularly right. I mean essentially a, a philosophy of social engagement that begins at the community level. That begins with looking at the relationships that exist between people in the context of in the context of a community where you have basic uh, sort of foundational institutions, including the family, including business, including ministry, including schools, and you have a culture that exists between these institutions that is only as strong as the people within that community's ability to relate to one another and care for one another. 
across whatever lines may exist of, of personal or group difference within the context of a community, right? And so it, it's funny because th- that article that I wrote for Colette, I mean, th- the upshot of that piece was basically that there is sort of a revival, I think, taking place right now of communitarian sorts of sentiments that are visible across the sort of left-right divide in America yeah. at the moment. And, and it's true from, from you know, from, uh, uh, from Senator Mike Lee's work with the Social Capital Summit uh, to uh, much of uh, uh, Cornell West's uh, lecturing and, and teaching uh, alongside uh, conservative professor Robert, Robert P. George on the, imper- on the importance of interpersonal and intergroup empathy and the heterodox work of Jonathan Haidt and uh, the focus of groups like uh, the American Project, which I work with, which is dedicated to sort of introducing, reintroducing uh, sort of community-based values to the mainstream conservative movement. And then the entire sort of depolarization space, Better Angels, Living Room Conversations, Joan Blades, you mentioned. Um, there are all these groups and thinkers popping up across the boards who are realizing the fact that, uh, I guess the way I would describe it is that the thing that threatens us most as a country right now is not so much the long-term prospects of the economy, although obviously that is a major thing, or you know our ability to, to, to cope with the debt and deficit or, or maintain our national security, although all of these things are existential. But the major thing threatening the long-term ability of this nation to survive is our ability to cohere as a community capable of maintaining a culture, maintaining the culture upon which healthy political institutions can exist. Yeah. So in other words, if we're always trying to sabotage each other as human beings, we're not going to play by the rules of the game. We're going to launch investigations into one another that are not born out of good faith or not considered on the basis of justice, but rather on the basis of political expediency. We're going to lie. We're going to cheat. We're going to steal. And systems fall apart when that becomes the cultural norm. And so I wrote that piece trying to shine a light on folks from Van Jones to Ben Sass across the spectrum who are working in this constructive direction, Glenn Beck. Um, and uh, many people on both sides appreciated it. Many people on both sides <laughs> had a real problem with it, interestingly enough. Well, that, that might, yeah. I mean, that, that might be a good thing. If, you, yeah. if, if you've written something that didn't mm-hmm. upset anybody, oh, yeah. Yeah, you, were, sure. you were probably doing clickbait and, and mm-hmm. shame on you. So sure, sure. Right, the... Right. You know that it's funny. Like my my friends across the political spectrum, I'm I'm thinking of a mutual friend of ours, who who's very progressive, and she shared with me what was basically a libertarian strategy for getting getting our politics out of Washington and taking it back to the community and focusing on the bottom up. And I to me, I think, and and Mike Lee has written this as a conservative. He thinks that that federalism is the key to allowing people to be different and, mm. and only when you're allowed to be different yeah. can you can you find those common right. things that that bind us together but but she was making a more sort of anarcho capitalist libertarian thing i don't think mm. she knew it this is devil in okay and um she's basically saying that that washington dc is never going to solve our problems it's got to be done at the community level it's got to be a responsibility that each of us has to to get to know our neighbors to understand where they're coming from Mm -hmm. and to to solve those problems by taking that individual responsibility not by hiring a lobbyist or or voting and hoping that that some politician's going to solve all our problems 
I think that's one of the upsides mm-hmm. to the downside of our dysfunctional, partisan, oh, yeah. angry thing. Because oh, yeah. people are hopefully looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, I guess I got to do this myself. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think that's okay. I think that part is healthy. Right. Yeah. No. And, and it's, it's something that it's, – it's, it's something that – it gets back to civic fundamentals, right? We have kind of gotten to a point, in my view – where we look at all political progress as breaking down over binary choices over federal policy, right? And yeah, there are such choices that need to be made, and and they certainly they certainly matter, you know. But a lot of times, you'll have a policy that does or does not go through on the federal level that winds up becoming damaging, not so much because of what the policy itself is doing or is trying to do, but because of sort of the vicious torrent of social and political response that it sets off that kind of catalyzes this race to the bottom where both sides find way to beat each other in ways that, again, undermine the integrity of the larger system, of the larger structure. I, I want to I win the D.C. lottery so that I can finally get a hold of power yeah. and punish those guys that have been punishing me exactly. all those years. Exactly, right? Yeah. And that is not like... It's not a sound governing philosophy to me, but it also bespeaks a culture that has become, you know, to use a word that maybe people use too much, but it it speaks a culture that's become toxic, basically, you know. And um, and yet you do find people. uh, I mean, I think that this is largely why you have, say, an intellectual dark web space to begin with. I mean, you do have people on the left and on the right, I think, who want to get back to the basic fundamentals of interpersonal decency and community building, mm-hmm. ultimately. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we're able to do that, it doesn't guarantee that one side or the other is going to win the next election. But I think it does guarantee, ultimately, that we'll be able to preserve the republic, we'll be able to preserve democracy uh, for the next generation. And that's the kind of deeper kind of, kind of battle that I'm fighting. That was, you know, the intellectual dark web in a lot of ways, or at least the trends that helped create the intellectual dark web mm-hmm. Um, were precisely the things that inspired me to start this this show, right. because I, and you know, Blaze TV, we're 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 a conservative mm-hmm. network, and and I stick out a little bit because mm-hmm. because I'm the the uh, flagship libertarian. Sure, right. but but the so you thing, get it from all sides. Basically. But you, libertarians <laughs> are very good at disappointing right. everybody, <laughs> and some of right. this is self inflicted. Some of it <laughs> some of it is absolutely our fault. Sure, sure. But the uh, the, the that trend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think is is sort of the the counter counter revolution against the you know originally we had these romantic hopes that the mm. internet was going to democratize everything and, and connect us all and, and everything mm. was going to be beautiful. Well, it's not quite that awesome yet. <laughs> and so the the <laughs> no, you know the the counter revolution was just a bunch of angry clickbait where we um, create caricatures of our enemies and that. and click yes and share. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the intellectual dark web and and the trend of young people they're 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 mm-hmm. fleeing Facebook and they're curating content and and they're consuming things that that in part are dictated by the open mindedness mm-hmm. and the tone right. of it right yeah yeah right well yeah so there are two things that are striking about that right off the bat. The one thing is, yes, there's a desire for there's a desire for conversations that range out beyond the the echo chamber, right? 
And so that's a fundamental appeal of the intellectual dark web space. I mean, you really do have people coming from as far to the right as, as Ben Shapiro and as far to the left as my friends Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, uh, who are able to come together and have have not just heterodox conversations or bipartisan conversations, but deep conversations about not about policy to be certain, but also deeper questions about culture and morality and even evolution, religion and science. So all that's fascinating, but it leads to the second thing which is striking, which is that these conversations are not soundbite conversations, typically. Uh, they go deep, and in some cases, they go several hours. Like you gotta, you know. Yeah, two to three hours. Yeah, you got. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, if you're if you're not a trucker, you're not going to be able to listen to well, some of it, these and conversations. And by the way, it's young people listening to setting. this. Yes, that's the thing. It's um, young people. I, I resent anyone that has three hours to dive deep into a conversation. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and so, but I've been one of these people who's been, I mean, recently, you know, this, this thing about being so busy with the work that I do, it's hard for me to keep up now. But, you know, I certainly spent a fair amount of time uh, listening to Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris and watching this space congeal into a conversational culture where everybody seemed to be welcome as long as you're willing to play by the rules of good faith interaction and good faith dialogue. And that's, you know, that's in line with the values that I brought to politics when I when I ran for Congress in 2014. And it's in line with with the strong aspect of what we try to do in the work of in the work of better angels. One thing I would say is that there does seem to be sort of a fairly firm dividing line drawn uh, within certain areas in the intellectual dark web. And for reasons I can understand uh, between, you know, folks who are. Folks who value free speech and, and, and folks who, you know, value reason and, and, and folks who have a certain, you know, social justice oriented worldview or an embrace of identity politics wherein they just can't have a reasonable conversation because they can't get past the sort of need to call out certain individuals for their wel- relative privilege on the basis of race or power or gender, or whatever the case may be. And so that's a serious divide in our social and our political conversation. But I do believe that as much as I would agree and feel that there are some serious difficulties with that way of seeing not just America broadly, but that way of looking at conversations, that the rules of a conversation should change depending on what the power balance or imbalance is. I do think that it's important to kind of look at sort of look at emotionally and experientially where folks in that camp are coming from. And when I speak to people in that camp, I try to make the same case going the other way and basically say to people on all sides, look, the greatest moral revolution in this country's history, I believe, was accomplished over the course of the nonviolent movement and the civil rights movement in the civil rights era as led by Martin Luther King Jr. And in the philosophy that he articulated, the nonviolent philosophy, what Dr. King stressed was the need for us, whether or not we, in, in disagreements with other parties, and even if we are being oppressed by other parties, to begin our interactions with others and even our opposition to others with the recognition of the fundamental human dignity that exists in the person on the other side. One is a means of more effectively reaching out to that person's conscience and swaying that person's mind if you can, but even if you can't, as a means of unshackling uh, yourself uh, from the burden of bitterness and hatred uh, and fear that tends to accompany the kind of prejudice that we so often bring to social and political conversations. I mean, whether we're right or wrong, 
right? Yeah, one, one, of, those, one of those rules of conversation, um, I think, and I, I'm sure someone has said this well, but this, just this idea of trying to actually understand what the other person is arguing. Right. And I've, I've found when I've, just a couple of years ago when I started hanging out with my, my new progressive friends, um, as much as I was trying, I had a hard time understanding sometimes sure. what they were trying to say. Mm-hmm. So just, just being aware that, mm. um, you know, particularly, you know, the words we were just mentioning before, you know, capitalism right. versus socialism, communitarian, Republican, conservative, all of these things, mm. Tea Party, libertarian, these, they, they'll have um, preconceived meanings that right. um, aren't necessarily going to get you to the mm. truth of what that person's trying to say. Right. And understanding the fact that you can be using the same words, but in effect speaking a different language, a different ideological language, that is key to having a conversation that's productive is sort of keying in on the places where that's the case. I have a friend, uh, uh, my friend Peter Bogosian has a book out called How to Have Impossible Conversations. And uh, it's a great sort of guidebook for sort of having a productive and kind of empathetic dialogue, even with people who have radically differing opinions. And one of the basic kind of pieces of advice he offers, him and James Lindsay, his co-author, one of the basic pieces of advice they offer in that book is to look at the person on the other side of the conversation as not being an opponent, but being a a partner with you, being a partner in the the search for truth. Because, I mean, even if the other individual sees things in a dramatically different way, if you treat the conversation the right way, if you're able to ask the right questions to get that person to kind of shine a light on why they see things the way they do, they're going to add to your ability to understand other people. And they may also show themselves to have a perspective on a certain question that completes some element of your understanding of an issue that maybe needed to be completed and you didn't realize it going into it. Um, to me, that's politics. I mean, that's that, you know, granted, I mean, you know, politics is a matter of well. It's of an ideal. It's a very idealized. Well, I was gonna. I was, I was gonna say for I mean, politics. I was gonna say yes. Um, I mean, obviously, on a, on a more on a more kind of um, on a more kind of uh, essential level. I mean, politics is this rough kind of interaction of self-interest where we deliberate over how to organize our common society based in part upon, you know, just sort of the leverage that competing interests are able to wield against each other in the context of negotiation. But I think that the founders of this country, in creating our constitutional system, set our system up in a way to where it would establish itself as a check against the worst impulses of human nature, while also rewarding those people who would want to engage in dialogue and deliberation in the civic process according to the better angels of our nature. Pardon me for throwing in the reference. That's nice, nice plug there. Indeed, uh, but the truth is, is that the founding fathers believed that you needed uh, a bedrock of virtue in the population to maintain civic society, and they were under no illusions about human nature. But they saw it at its depths, and they saw it uh, at its noblest. And so, I think that in our own time, we ought to be mindful of the inevitable fact that you know people. Even, you know, reason, people who are reasonable and decent much of the time are going to have moments where they're triggered towards behaving in ways that are, you know, abominable from time to time. And maybe some people are like that much of the time. But we also have this capacity for reason and we also have this capacity uh, for love, frankly, you know, and for genuine understanding uh, that can govern us in the direction 
that are the ingredients of self-governance that can allow us to govern our society in a wiser, in a wiser kind of way. And to me, that's the direction we want to be pushing the conversation. And, um, you know, my job in part is to find folks who are interested in rowing that same direction and get them to start rowing together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, 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 the methodology you laid out for, for having a conversation, I feel like that sort of openness to the process of, of figuring stuff out is, right. is the basis of, of mm-hmm. freedom, the way I think about it. It's the basis of, of the American <laughs> system, and it's not just how we sort things out in the public square. It's how we figure stuff out at the community level. It's how entrepreneurs mm. disrupt marketplaces. And maybe that's the basis for why there is, and I think it's a small minority in this country that, that have become uh, adamantly anti-free speech. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't want to hear what their opponent has to say. Right. And, and your, your friend suffered that at, at Brent, um, yeah. At Evergreen. Evergreen. Right. Um, but I, I was I was sort of surprised by by how violent the reaction was against mm-hmm. the interne- intellectual dark web because I, I thought we all mm-hmm. I naively thought we all agreed that free speech was a good thing and that open conversation was a good thing, very American things. Right. But now there's there's a very authoritarian and it's it's mostly on the left that the right's guilty of this too, you know. The, the the right wants to censor Facebook just as much as Elizabeth Warren wants to break it up. So, <laughs> right. but the the this push against speech, um, I, this I think this is one of the most dangerous things in America today. Mm-hmm. Right, but I do think it it reflects it reflects a couple of things. I mean, you know, the viewpoint itself is is worth remarking upon. Now, I don't think it's most people on the left by any means who have sort of a generalized antipathy towards free speech as an instrument of the patriarchy, right? But you do have a sizable contingent of of activists who I think are concentrated on not just college campuses in general, because I don't think you find this at community colleges too much or at most state colleges. I mean, Evergreen obviously would be an exception, but but I think at elite universities in particular – Yale, you might probably remember the professor from Yale, I think Nicholas Christakis, who was, you know, hounded in a pretty radical sort of way. Um, you find in certain certain places in elite universities, um, you know, pockets of people who feel that uh, debate and free speech itself are mechanisms by which, you know, the white supremacist or the patriarchal power structure maintains its power, Right. And, um, you know, the thought process that leads to that to that point of view is one, I think, that is born in part from a frustration that certain people have over the fact that when it comes to the culture of of governance, like all other institutions in the United States and anywhere, really, all of our institutions have sort of a cultural ancestry even regardless of the color composition that make up the people in an institution at any certain period of time. Um, When I was growing up, my dad was very adamant that I speak the king's English. That was a phrase that he used. And if I came home, you know, speaking like I had just walked off the set of like, you know, 106 in Park or something like that, you know, BET, right? If I wound up, you know, speaking in a certain way that was like, it sounded like I was trying to imitate my favorite rapper. I wasn't allowed to listen to rap, by the way, at my father's house. Uh, I'd get in trouble for that. 
My dad would say, speak like Martin Luther King Jr., you know? And um, that's connected to this a little bit because for many people who come from communities that they feel are, you know, outside of the kind of cultural heritage from which our institutions seem to descend, then they feel like there's almost literally a language or a dialect of power, right? And so people are trying to change the rules of conversation to reflect power imbalance in part because they don't see themselves as having a fair purchase on the culture or the heritage of literally just our democratic institutions themselves. And so it's, it's, it's hard to see that from the outside when all, when all you hear are just these triggering phrases like white privilege and white supremacy and patriarchy, etc. Uh, but, but it is important to start to understand that narrative a little bit to begin to understand how, one, how, how we can go about communicating with that point of view. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting dynamic given that um, by, by any sort of objective historical measure, Mm-hmm. Um, the minority voice mm-hmm. is radically empowered today because right. you you don't need to get on a TV network and you you don't even need a political party in order mm-hmm. to express your opinions, right. and and yet that's 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 it's, it seems to be a double edged sword for mm-hmm. for people that still feel disenfranchised that they that they don't have the power to speak. Right. Yeah. Well, it is. It's it's true that it's easy to to gain a fair amount of attention if you're willing to do something wild, right? If you're willing to shut down a campus or, you know, maybe block a freeway um, or, you know, say something radical on YouTube or what have you, you know. Um, and it's also true that in most respects, um, people from various communities, including, you know, African-Americans and and other uh, ethnic minorities and, you know, gay Americans, et cetera, uh, enjoy more, uh, more opportunities, more wealth on average, um, and um, just a higher quality of life in most categories uh, and, you know, more uh, consistent access to, to rights and equal rights, equal protection under the law than had been the case in, you know, just a, just a few decades ago. Really, right? And so we look at that on a surface level and think, well, you know, the, the the complaints and the grievances of underrepresentation and not having the opportunity to express oneself seem to be at odds with this increase in in affluence and the fact that hey, we all hear you, right? We all hear what it is you guys are saying on these college campuses. As a matter of fact, we feel like we can't get away from it, and that's why that's. Partially why we're listening to Ben Shapiro and partly why we're listening to Jordan Peterson, etc. But from the vantage point of people who live in certain certain communities, and you know, there are fine distinctions to be made between some activists, I think, who posture themselves as representing people who are marginalized uh, or who they would say are marginalized, and people who are actually living in tough circumstances and kind of being held up as you know as as victims by that that group. So. It's it's it would take us a minute to sift through all that. But it's definitely true that there are people living in the United States of America today who, regardless of everything else I just said, still live in a situation to where they are kind of locked in a series of institutional relationships that prevents them from having the educational opportunity, the economic opportunity, the social mobility or the community connection 
necessary to have anything resembling a reasonable shot at the American dream. So I lived in the Jordan Downs projects uh, in Watts for about a year or so. Um, and there's a whole story behind that. Uh, I married into a, I, I married a woman uh, who, who grew up in the Jordan Downs and whose family was from the Jordan Downs. And, you know, Matt, I, I, I met people, uh, young men uh, in, in the projects in, in Los Angeles who were my age, like, you know, early 20s and whatnot, early to mid-20s. Um, this is not long before I ran for Congress. Who had never been to the beach in Santa Monica, you know, just uh, just a few miles away. I mean, I'm in, we're sitting here in Washington D.C. now. Um, I, I'm sure I can find all sorts of people out here who know what who, who've been to Malibu, right? Who've been to Santa Monica. But for people living in this place, you know, the the only experience they've had with 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 white people, right, or most of the people outside of the community that they live in there. Um, outside of the inner city community, um, uh, the only experience they've had with white people have been through, you know, through 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 overburdened or indifferent school teachers, uh, uh, bureaucrats who don't necessarily who are overwrought and over, you know, and don't necessarily put any passion or commitment into their work because they've just been sucked in as cogs of a soulless bureaucratic system, uh, or police who have been hardened by working in a tough and aggressive environment who oftentimes are not really interested in cutting somebody the benefit of the doubt when they pull somebody over uh, who just happens to be, you know, making a U-turn at the wrong intersection at the wrong time and happens to look suspicious whether or not they're actually doing anything wrong or not. These are the sorts of social relationships that they have that make them think that the wider community outside of the projects is not one that they're going to be comfortable just walking into. Because in a sense, once you get outside of the hood, you're kind of an alien um, in your own city, in your own state, in your own country. And if you go back in terms of the historical experience of somebody living in that sort of place, they only have to look back a generation to find parents and relatives who were, you know, victims of of the crack cocaine epidemic in the 80s or the political violence of the 60s. People whose family moved out to uh, moved out from the South to the West Coast to escape, you know, racist violence there, only to find themselves victims of redlining in Los Angeles or you know police brutality, depending on what part of the city you were in uh, in the 1950s as an African American. Go back a generation or two before that. Um, you have people who lived in the South who remembered the Klan and before that whose parents were slaves. Their entire American experience is characterized by a series of struggles and difficulties at each and every stage of which they or their ancestors did not seem to have an equal purchase on opportunity or on the American dream, right? And so we shouldn't necessarily expect everybody in this country to have the same kind of psychological starting point in terms of embracing the norms of democratic uh, culture, right? We have to constantly be trying to win our own people over as Americans to the values of these ideas, to the values of liberty, to the values of freedom of speech. We've got to know how to more effectively communicate with each other in doing it as opposed to just relying on the bully pulpits of, you know, cable news or talk radio or political office to sort of just say things and expect that people with very different life experiences are going to agree with them. Like I'm not afraid of making the sales pitch, um, for making the sales pitch uh, for for democratic values. I'm not afraid of making the sales pitch for liberty and for freedom and for an adherence to the values of the Constitution. 
You've got to be willing to do that in a way to where it can actually work. And I think that that's something that too many folks on the right uh, have become a little bit lazy in trying to do because we feel as if these values should be obvious, right? But that's yeah. never guaranteed. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but I'm not, I'm not sure they, you know, you'd hope they'd be obvious, but you would hope that a lot of things are just are just uh, available and understood to everybody. And it's, right. it's not necessarily true that that's the case. Um, I want to, I want to take this out, um, by going back to your, to your jazz heritage, because I, I, I think I have a solution and you, and you, mm-hmm. you tell me if I'm right. And, and I'm, I'm stealing it from John Coltrane. Okay. Um, he, it, I, I love John Coltrane. I, I discovered him through Miles Davis mm-hmm. and, um, towards the end of his career, he was pushing the very limits of the structure of jazz. And, mm-hmm. and if you listen to a, a beautiful 20-minute mm-hmm. improvisation from John Coltrane, um, you, you discover there's a couple rules mm-hmm. that hold the band together and hold the song together. Mm-hmm. But 10 minutes in, you don't, you're not so sure that those rules even exist. So there's a couple <laughs> rules that hold things together. Right. And then there's a lot of improvisation mm-hmm. and interaction between the members of the band that, that creates something more beautiful than, than you could have written on a piece of paper. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's, mm. the, that's the process of America, mm. um, yeah. fixing ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's, there's no end here. We're always gonna get better. Um, we always should get better. Um, it's the process that has to be bottom up because, right. because I don't believe that anyone's smart enough to write that song for us. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, it's probably this process of reconciliation that, that you're mm-hmm. trying to, to engender with with everything that you're doing, right? Yeah, you no, buying this? Yeah, I'm I'm already there. Um, look, music has always kind of been my metaphor for understanding society. Actually, to tell you the truth, and uh, I feel like if the way you speak is not, you know, if you don't speak in a way to where you're sort of like, well, look, if you're if you're playing a song that nobody wants to listen to, you're not playing it the right way. And so we ought to think of communication sort of the way we think of music. I mean, there's subjectivity, there's taste and so forth. Yeah. You can be a good musician and be playing something that some folks aren't going to want to hear. But ultimately, you know, if you if you have something meaningful you, you want to get across, you know, we, we should be willing to employ a little bit of a little bit of artistry and even a little bit of improvisation in making sure that the message is is heard. And in the context of a, of a democratic society, in the context of our democratic republic, it's true. Just like, a, just like a jazz song, you have the underlying structure. So in a song, you're going, to have, you're going to have the chords, you're going to have the changes, you're going to have a tempo which moves up or down or faster or slower, and you're going to have the key that it's set in. But then, you know, and similarly, we've got our constitutional structure, we've got, uh, we've got the ballot process, uh, we've got the deliberative processes of the legislature and the Congress and the interaction between the between the branches of government, et cetera. Uh, but within that, within the changes, which in the, within the chords, we have the actual improvisation on the melody. We have the conversations that we have in our free spaces through our freedom of association and our right to freedom of speech. We have the actual sort of necessary um, responsibility as citizens of the United States of America to, col- to conduct our political and our social interactions in a way that breeds the preconditions necessary for basic human respect and basic human empathy. And from that, potentially, you know, some reasonable consensus that can be developed around issues that we can actually decide together. Um, you know, that's where the jazz comes in to me. 
And that's where the passion for, for the passion for democratic life needs to come in. Because it's a privilege to be able to do this, man. It's a privilege for me to be able to sit here and talk to you. Like, it really is. Um, precisely because in this country, we have the opportunity to speak our minds, whether or not somebody else wants to hear it or not. But the flip side of that is that in speaking our mind and saying what we believe, we need to recognize the fact that that marks this as a collaborative enterprise in the direction of preserving the health of society. And again, that starts on the individual and the community level. That starts not just with the individual as a voter, but with the individual as a member of society and as, and as, and as a neighbor, as a member of a family, as a member of the small institutions that ultimately level up to provide the base, the, the, the foundation upon which our major sorts of political structures, you know, have their life and have their viability. So the sooner we can, st- we can start looking away from Congress and looking away from the president and so forth as being the main kind of agents of national momentum in this country and start to take power back in terms of the relationships we have as Americans who are part of, parts of communities, who have the ability to change the foundational uh, conversation and culture in the country, the sooner we'll get back to a place to where the basic structure of society uh, becomes stable and healthy again. Very, so that's very, what I want to see. Very small L libertarian. Yeah. Um, be careful. You might, you might be coming over to my tribe soon. But uh, <laughs> thank you, John, so much. Yeah. If, if people want to check out your stuff, where do they go? That's right. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, love for people to check out Better Angels. Consider joining us as a member and uh, taking part in these sorts of conversations and collaborations. Uh, you can find us at uh, better-angels.org. And uh, you'll also be able to look up the John Wood Jr. Show. Got my own podcast coming up in a couple of weeks. And people who are interested in this movement, this effort to bring Americans together in this way, uh, they can learn more about it there. Good deal. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.